Hello and welcome to Local Trust's Big Local Podcast. My name is Carrie Newson and I recently wrote about some of the communities in the UK that received over a million each in lottery funding. My essay, Designs on the Past, is about what history and heritage might be able to do for hard-pressed communities. Designs on the Past is available as a mobile-friendly digital download at Local Trust's website, www.localtrust.org.uk, where you can also find out more about Big Local. Local Trust asked me to introduce these themes at a roundtable event chaired by Jessica Wemben-Smith of Local Trust. Here are the edited highlights. Hello, well, as you can probably tell, I'm not Matt Leach, who's our Chief Executive at Local Trust. In fact, I'm Jessica, and I'm the Head of Communications here, and I'm very delighted to be welcoming you all to the latest podcast in our series. And it's about heritage, a topic which lots of big local areas care about and decide to get very involved with. We're going to find out why that is as the conversation progresses. But meanwhile, here is Kerry Newson, author of the latest in our series of essays, and this one is called Designs on the past. And so here is Kerry Newson. So the reason that I became interested in this is that there's quite a few heritage projects in the work that Big Local is doing. So you see things like oral histories or town trails or restoring a monument. And I became very interested in this and in really trying to understand what the thinking behind this was. Why have people become interested in heritage? Um, What kind of outcomes were they looking for? And what kind of learning had come out of it so far? And really what I was trying to work out was what can history do for communities? So I started out on a journey around the country which I found really fascinating and I started off by going to Ramsey in Huntingdonshire where they've done a project which is all about opening these small heritage attractions that they have and bringing together all the different heritage groups in the town in order to to create these open days and I also went and uh, visited Plasto South in London where they have an oral history project where part of that is about celebrating the 70th anniversary of the NHS and they had had done a project with retired nurses and I went to Gateshead where they had a project that was creating an artwork that really drew on the area's industrial past in order to work with school children and I went to as well to Boston in Lincolnshire where they were very interested in celebrating their Hanseatic past, reaching right back into medieval times when the town had had lots of connections across Northern Europe. So these were all really quite different projects. So they were quite distinctive in terms of what they were what they were doing, what they were trying to achieve. In Ramsey, the reasons were, were really all about the fact that the town had felt that it would become quite isolated and was quite disconnected from other places and they wanted to really bring more people into their town Um, and at the same time they wanted to improve the vitality of their streets and and to really increase footfall uh, particularly on the high street and so their way of doing that was to almost reinvent themselves as a small historic town building on it this enormous social capital that they had there in terms of the heritage groups that were working there. 
What I found was that in moving around the country and in talking to these people, it meant that I was talking quite often to local historians. And, and when you talk to local historians, you tend to get quite a long view. Some of the issues that people were facing were described in terms of very long-term changes, such as the centralisation and intensification of agriculture over time and the decline in, the, in an industrial base. Those shifting employment patterns were very important in the long term in terms of the challenges that people were facing and had different local consequences. And it also made me think about other huge changes that are taking place that are likely to affect employment patterns in the future, such as automation and how that might change all our lives in ways that at the moment we're only just beginning to foresee. So, that was me introducing my essay, and here is the discussion it sparked with our guests, who were Jane Sills, a representative from Ramsey Big Local, Paul Bristow from the Arts Council, Becca Antink from the RSA, Helen Graham from the Centre of Critical Studies in Museums, Galleries and Heritage at the University of Leeds, and Tim Coram from the Horniman Museum in South London. Here's the chair, Jessica Wembensmith, getting us started. I think we're going to have the conversation in quite a loose way, so I will try and make sure, as the kind of host of it, that I bring everybody in. But you can also indicate to me if you've got something to say. I do want to just ask Jane initially to respond, just because uh, Jane is the only representative here from a big local area. And obviously, Kerry was just describing that you had a very particular reason for choosing Heritage. Other things have come into play as you've pursued your plan, so maybe you'd like to tell us why you came to Heritage in Ramsey. Thank you very much. Just a tiny bit about Ramsey first because it's not the sort of place most people know anything about. It's a small market town in the Fens which is 12 to 13 miles away from the nearest large town so it's quite isolated so public transport is dire. It's not on an A road but it does have a lot of history in a whole wide variety of ways, from a, a very famous medieval abbey, the drainage of the fens, a whole wide variety of different aspects. Now, from the big local perspective, residents wanted the town to be more vibrant. They were concerned that there were less shops than there used to be, less people in town, and were just concerned about the town declining. We decided that we would market Ramsey as a destination. So the prime mover behind developing the project was really economic, to try and bring people into the town to help develop the town. And then once we had Anne Cuthbert in post, it took off really by having a professional marketing person. We focused on Heritage Open Days. We had one in September when it's the national one, and then we had another one in April at the beginning of the year. And that did bring people in from elsewhere, which is what we wanted. The pubs and restaurants had busier days. But what also happened that I guess we hadn't totally thought of at the beginning was we engaged with local residents because we publicised it locally and sent information out in book bags and stuff from school. And the residents attend the Heritage Days in quite big numbers and we have a free vintage bus that goes around that encourages that. And local people have actually enjoyed finding out more about the heritage of their town and we think it's actually helped increase the sort of pride that people feel in the place that they live in knowing that it has the history behind it. There was such a strong driver for you and Ramsey to have this economic, quite hard-nosed approach to it. But Tim, it isn't always like that. 
I thought of all of the um, case studies in the essay that in some ways it was the most progressive, strangely enough. You know, I was very impressed actually with Ramsey's very strategic approach, you know, identifying real outcomes, which were about sustaining not just the community engagement, but also the impacts for the wider community. I was really impressed with the Ramsey thing. You know, at one level, it's a very traditional way of thinking about your heritage, but actually it was, it was cut with a very very smart kind of strategic way of thinking. The question that I leaves me with was how do you evaluate some of those softer aspects? So, so I could see that you can probably work out the GDP of Ramsey went up by a certain percentage over that time. How do we evaluate the impact on the, the community's sense of well-being? And in terms of how we evaluate this, in, we've done all the hard stuff like counting the numbers of people that come, but it's really also almost more of an impression that we get. We haven't really done a very academic study, but we there have been some positives in the sense that we've now just got a 50,000 Heritage Lottery grant to continue the work by making a... We're trying to develop a story. We call it Ramsey, a journey through time, to develop a story, and we'll have to do much more rigorous monitoring the Heritage Lottery Fund. And our town council, they've just put funding into the project. doesn't sound much, but for Ramsey, that's a huge plus that the town council are supporting something in the town that's been done by another organisation. Helen, what do you think? This kind of question, which is quite a persistent one, really, about how you evaluate the impact of community heritage projects. I suppose reading the essay and hearing about these projects, I think, allowed me to kind of return to that question, really. So, so much work in community heritage has made these kinds of claims around pride, around belonging, around well-being, educational outcomes, as well as economic outcomes. And... All of those come very much from a sense that there is some kind of deficit within the community that heritage can be used to address in some way that then can be measured in a, in a kind of governmental framework. And one of the question marks for me in engaging with this in terms of big local is whether the priority on community-led approaches to development and regeneration allows us to shift the debate away from some of those, you know, done to beneficiary models to ones where the communities are framing their own sense of what is valuable about it. And linked to that, I wonder whether one of the key outcomes is the numbers of people that are actively involved in making their places and influencing what happens, rather than some of those models that I think have been sought uh, traditionally in terms of measuring well-being or, or measuring those kinds of outcomes. So that was a question that was left for me by the work. Paul? Yeah, I think this question of how you capture the outcomes is a, is a really key one. And I'd reflect that it's something we see in the kind of broader culture and heritage sectors as well. And I think it was quite interesting the way you were talking about the economy being a real driver for you, but you weren't actually able to capture some of the kind of headline big figures around, you know, gross value added or jobs. And, and kind of think I'd reflect that that kind of doesn't matter because what you're talking about is that some of the people who need to support you and what you're trying to do have been convinced so the town council are investing and I think I'd reflect that we see this in some of the projects that we invest in as well that actually it's really really tricky to kind of extract some of those headline figures because we're talking about quite small scale activity and quite small scale stuff so if you're going to do that you're probably going to pay more to evaluate it than you are to run the project and that seems a bit of a waste of time but the success to me seems to be where other people value what you're doing and they're prepared to keep supporting you. So the town council is supporting you as you're going on. I can think of projects that we've been involved with where, you know, once the Arts Council funding comes to an end, 
other people are supporting it and people might be supporting the partnerships into the future in a different way. And that's probably quite a strong indicator of success. And, and then I think in terms of you know, the community impact, that question of how many people are involved, who is involved, and did they enjoy, like, and value what they were doing is probably about the best we can get, but is the kind of thing that goes back into those stories that convinces people, convinces those external partners, and keeps them supporting it into the future. Kerry, did you have something you wanted to add to that? I'd be interested to hear, because you have such a broad perspective on the other big local areas you, you went to. Uh, yes, I think, I mean, quite a few of the areas had had uh, surveys, because they were part of big local, they had done surveys, which were simply about whether the place was becoming a better place to live. And so that meant that they definitely had a sense that they were succeeding. You know, they couldn't necessarily trace that back very specifically to the heritage work, but obviously the heritage work was part of the mix. So that did seem to be something that was a, a useful metric. There were all kinds of useful metrics of that sort, I think. But there was also just just people's impressions and people's sense that that they were winning um, and that what they were doing was was something that, that counted and that had lots of positive spin-offs. So, for instance, the fact that it was producing these great events that were really good for parents and children meant that, you know, there, there was something more to it than simply what it was setting out to do initially. Becca, I sort of yeah. think you were trying to <laughs> say something there. There's no point creating burdensome processes for every single place that's trying to do some of this stuff. There's there's an evidence body, you know, telling us that this is good stuff to be doing. Um, you can improve community cohesion and sense of well-being and, and all of that. And it, it feels like it's a more logical approach to encourage what at the RSA we talk about networked heritage. So while you have activities and interventions like what you're doing in Ramsey, a very sort of place-based in your local area, also being outward looking and networking with other places that are doing similar things and sharing what works and what doesn't. And I think that's why the big local model is really, really interesting because it definitely facilitates a lot of that. And to me, it makes a lot more sense to encourage learning and sharing um, to in improve rather than not constantly relying on ongoing evaluation at the micro level. We just recently had an event called Big Local Connect, which was bringing together all of the big local areas. And we actually had this pop-up museum. This is one of the, the items, the artifacts that I um, freed from the museum at the end of its, uh, of its life. And it sits on my desk for no particularly good reason, except to kind of uh, record in some abstract way, you know, the energy that people put into things. Some child somewhere created this stone about their place. And I think that desire to, to kind of record and document and represent your place is quite strong in people and I really felt in Carey's essay resurfaced in lots of different ways in those places and in Gateshead where the quite recent industrial history was still very much alive in Plasto where it's really about living history and a very fluctuating community and in Boston where it's got a much more uh, kind of political messaging around it in a sense. I'm interested to know whether that's something which has always been or whether there's a particular sense for, for why it's happening now. Becca? We, you know, we're grappling with whose stories are heard, who's valued, and it feels like um, heritage has a really important part to play in all of that. I was at an event at the East End Women's Museum quite recently, and, and they've got some really fantastic stuff going on. And it feels like, on the one hand, you know, we sometimes it's quite easy to fall back on those sorts of simpler kind of single perspective narratives, which has maybe sort of dominate, you know, dominate when we look at history, that's maybe focusing on the, on the stories of landowners or, you know, those, those that have been in kind of historical positions of power. Power. And actually, some of this local heritage work, it feels like we can open up those more sort of plural narratives that 
give us a much more nuanced and meaningful way of understanding the world as it is now through that like lens of heritage and thinking about how we want our places to be in the future. I think there is something about the fact that place is so important to people now. It's not just about where you live, it's how you understand yourself. And, and that's really entered the kind of policy discourse in a way that we haven't seen before. So we're understanding things like inequalities in terms of where you live, or we might have previously spoken about in terms of you know, gender or class or ethnicity. We now really understand the geographic nature of that. So there's, there's a contested and, a, and a, a controversial nature of place, which immediately means people pay attention to it. And that connects with many of the changes that were, you know, Carrie referred to in her essay. But I think there's something else as well about why this is a moment now, and I think it's kind of contained in your stone which is that that's a creative act. That's something that, that's been done to tell a story and to represent something. And I think I was struck by you know, the, the opportunity to be creative and to not have limits on how they were telling that story. And you know, thinking about the connections between heritage, place, and the ways in which people can act within them and be creative, I think is, is really important. And a lot of stuff's happening around that, that at the moment, which is why I think this is a key moment now. It feels to me that in some ways this debate's been going on, I think, really for four decades. And a kind of tussle over who gets to define heritage on who's termed on whose behalf has been a defining feature of the kind of museum and heritage practice and the academic debates around it. Um, in a UK context, it was absolutely prompted, uh, known as the heritage debates, by the shifts in industrial um, patterns of employment in the way that Kerry you introduced in your essay, leading to a real anxiety from key Marxist influence critics that all that people were left with as the mines closed and the shipyards closed was nostalgia and that that was going to do the exact opposite of create a progressive political movement that can create you know, democratically orientated change. There are always other voices like Raphael Samuel kind of saying, no, we're, we, you're not seeing the kind of energy and enthusiasm and passion of local people engaging with their heritage. So this is in a way a sort of long-standing debate. Heritage just hold a space where contested understandings of what's going on now can be held and contested power structures can also be navigated and negotiated. So in a sense, what I sort of hear very strongly from your essay, Kerry, and also the other essays in this series is the big locals intervention, thinking about how the, the state how public organisations and public funding intersect at a time when public funding is being reduced with community-led action. And Heritage is a very rich place for thinking about that because of this history of those contests of how power operates. So I wonder whether that's something to do with why now. Tim, I'm thinking you might have an interesting no, <laughs> reflection no, I, on that. That's a really interesting point, Helen, that you make. I mean, there has been for some time this interest in an asset-led approach to um, community development and the abilities for existing cultural organisations to develop those kinds of networks and those programmes has been reduced because the funding, particularly in local authority-funded um, cultural organisations, has really dropped out of, the, um, out of the system. Now, that's not a great thing for those organisations, but... It has enabled or, or provided some space for grassroots organisations to begin to take some ownership over that. So I think there's some kind of encouragement. I think, I think that the, each of the, the case studies, if you like, demonstrate a different way that that dynamic is, is developing at the moment. In Ramsey, none of the heritage projects have ever had any state funding whatsoever. The Rural Museum has been going for 30 years and it's never had any state funding. There has been a lot of community effort, but what Big Local has been able to interject is a bit of strategic thinking and a bit of a way of coordinating the groups that already existed.
I'd add to that, particularly in the context of Ramsey, I remember you saying, Jane, how important it was, how important you felt it was to have professional effort going into the work as well. So that although you had this huge social capital in the area um, and, and cultural capital from your voluntary groups, you felt that it was really critical to have that professional help. We have to be careful about drawing a conclusion that we can just leave this to communities. I think it's so important that the communities do have that strategic help and that they do have the funding. I would just second that um, in terms of big local altogether, I don't think in Ramsey we would have achieved what we did if we hadn't employed workers from the beginning. Looking back more at the, the sort of policy context, there's been a bit of a shift, I think, in the way that central government and local authorities think about tackling the sort of social challenges and economic challenges in places. Um, and I think we are seeing a move away from kind of top-down regeneration to language around placemaking that is more holistic, that is more inclusive, that is more nuanced and there it, it requires that kind of grassroots, bottom-up element for sure. And it feels like heritage has a really, really powerful and important role to play in that. Tim, I was just thinking it'd be really interesting for people here to hear about how you're working with the communities near in South London, which is rather different from Big Local, but nonetheless, it's very communities are given a, a lead role, aren't they? We have um, this extraordinary collection it's been there for a hundred years, it's very established, it's, um, it's seen as being very important and precious. But we know that there are a large number of communities that we work with um, on a long-term basis who um, can add a lot of value to the way that people understand that collection. So from one, one point of view, we are thinking about our community engagement as, as developing new work, new stories around our collection. We also have a, a long-standing commitment through our community engagement to offer opportunities to a small number of communities and community partners um, to have quite sustained engagement with, with, our, with our work, offering the museum as a network and a platform for them to present their ideas. Uh, often the, the museum takes a very strong lead and, if you like, describes and defines the area of inquiry and says it's got to be delivered in a certain way. So this time what we decided to do was to talk to a very wide community of interest of all the community partners that we're involved in and say, how would you like the museum to act? Um, how would you like to use the space? Forget about us as the museum, this is a, this is a, a platform and a space and the collection which we want to, for you to engage in and, and produce something which is of value to you. And so what that has resulted in is, is a, the development of a collective of community partners who have commissioned an artist and have taken over one of our spaces um, and our programme and project their own ideas, if you like, and their own interests from the museum back to our visitors. Probably a very different kind of uh, situation um, that Ramsey were confronted with. But I think there's a, there's a you know, we've, we've tried our very best to try and, if you like, overturn those existing power relationships and offer um, the community the lead position in developing the programme. I mean, what I really find fascinating about that is that actually that becomes, as you described it, a platform for a completely different conversation and has this ability to connect people and provide a, a background in a way for very contemporary conversations about how people sort of uh, feel about 
the place that they live and who they know and how that's changing. I mean, it's not unique, but an added advantage at the Hornland because the, the collections are international and they relate to communities right across the globe, um, as well as having a, a sort of South London focus, actually those connections are being made internationally as well and are intercultural as well as being very focused in the London experience. I mean, Kerry, that sort of very now reinvention of, of history to hold other conversations, is that something you saw, saw happening as well? What I ended up seeing was projects that had been set up and that, that were now turning into a dialogue with, with the wider community. And so you know, it'd be really interesting to know what follows and to know quite where those conversations then go, I think. I mean, the other thing that I felt quite aware of with those projects is that in many ways, those projects were creating a social focus that was very important, that actually just having that focus as a place where people could then meet and discuss their, what was on their minds was really critical. And it, so, for instance, in the case of Boston, one of the, one of the things that had happened was that actually, um, although there'd been this uh, incredible period of the, um, the Hanseatic past of the town, it had all come to a, a sort of slightly disastrous end when one of the Esteling merchants had been murdered and then there was the Anglo-Hanseatic conflict after that. And so you could say, well, this narrative isn't necessarily suiting, you know, suiting your purposes that well. And I did raise that with Rachel Lorberts, who, um, who's the coordinator of the big local plan there. And she said, yes, yes, but actually, you know, in the end, it's not about that. It's a way of giving us a reason to, to get out to meet and to, to really get a bit of oomph back into the place was what she said. So, so it does make you start thinking, well, you, you know, you can't be too reverential about exactly what that narrative is. It still provides a focus. It's still something that's, that's shared between people. And that's part of what's important about it. Helen, I'm thinking of you. Is that enough? Should we expect more of it than that? Well, I think um, thinking of heritage as the big discussion, the big debate and the big conversation about what our places are is a pretty good understanding of what it is but I don't see that as being then the end because that is also a basis for thinking about the places that you're in now and the kind of place you want to live in in the future and taking shared responsibility in making the future so I also see some of these debates as prefiguring a different kind of idea of local democracy and local democratic engagement as well so far from being something small I actually think it could be something and I think there are examples of it being something very big and something powerful in terms of democratic participation and renewing democracy in local places. Yeah, I think that the, the question about how seismic it is, you know, it doesn't always achieve a grand finale, does it? I think that there are these places where heritage has played a really important role in opening a conversation, but the future can actually look a little bit more uncertain. Yes, I mean, that was certainly the case with Charlton Walk Park in Gateshead, that although they had they'd done a lot of work and they put up this fantastic art installation, that had been the beginning of a, a good conversation that then taken them into the schools and into very interesting school projects. But the hope that it was going to regenerate the park didn't seem to be necessarily paying off and it, it seemed much more uncertain what was going to happen to that little corner of Gateshead. They had wanted to, to revive the park, but they didn't feel that they had the voluntary 
effort to spend on that. There was too much voluntary effort going into other things such as their quite ambitious allotment programme. And so it meant that they couldn't just sort of rustle up the volunteers to do this. And parks particularly, they're not a statutory service and they've been cut nationwide by about 40% the budgets to parks. So you have got a problem there where austerity is really biting and it really is changing neighbourhood spaces in a way that, that is quite difficult to simply overcome by voluntary work. Kerry, I particularly am interested in this idea of weather fronts and that there are these big long-term shifts that happen that influence our society that actually are felt very differently in different places. That's uh, an idea which I think comes across really strongly in your essays and has got real power in it. I think it is true that in travelling around the country and in meeting these different places, uh, one thing that happened was that because I was talking to people who were local historians, they tended to have this very long view of what was happening. Because we have 24-hour news cycles, we tend to think quite short-term, you know, to habitually think quite short-term. Whereas doing this project made me think a bit more long-term, and I did have this sense in in travelling around the country that particularly when, when people started talking about the challenges that their areas had faced, they would talk about the way in which agriculture had become more centralised. So, for instance, in Boston, the intensification of agriculture was very important in changing the way that farming was done and uh, increasing the demand for packers and pickers. And similarly, in Ramsey, the intensification and centralisation of of agriculture was important in shaping the way that the town was now because it meant that the town no longer operated in the same way in relation to local farmers. And similarly in Gateshead and also in Plasto South, the decline in the industrial base of Britain had made a huge difference to working patterns in that area and, and had really influenced the way that, that people thought about the area. And so as a result of this, I, I really had this sense that I was, it was almost like looking at a weather map and seeing these huge weather fronts moving across the country and, and having lasting, very long-term effects on life in different areas, but actually playing out in quite different ways in different communities because of quite chance things about the type of community involved and the way it had played out locally. So one of the things I love is that actually when you're in that place, you don't necessarily perceive the weather fronts. What you perceive is whether it's raining or shining or how what's happening in your place. And what's so special, I think, about the idea of heritage is that you can use it to actually make those links, to make those connections to wider social shifts. And that's one of the things which I think really comes out of your reporting in this essay. Well, I think it's true that heritage does change your whole perspective and it, it does make you think in quite a different way. And and I've found that in thinking about these long-term changes, I started to think also about the, the overall values that people were adopting through the projects and I was very struck by the fact that very often inclusivity was really important in those projects. That was part of the, the values that people were really emphasising. In the case of talking to Joyce Baptiste, who is a midwife who'd come to Plasto South, she was very much talking about the importance of the National Health Service as being a service that offered the same service to everybody, whatever their background, and that was really central to her perception of what was so important about it. Similarly, talking to Jane Yardley, who was involved in restoring the mortuary chapels in Ramsey, she was really emphasising the idea that everybody who had been buried there had played a part in Ramsey, that all these people had really contributed to Ramsey. 
And so that was something where the overall message of inclusivity was really implicit in the work that they were doing. And I think that stands in quite a stark contrast, really, to the other seismic shift that we've seen over the last 50 years in terms of these big weather fronts. Um, I think it also really made me think about where are the next really big shifts going to come from, the shifts that are going to really change our lives and change working patterns, and are we prepared for them? And particularly thinking about the automation of work and the extent to which that's going to change working patterns um, and, and how that will have knock-on effects for communities that, again, will play out in different ways in different places. And what are we doing now to really protect that future? How can we learn from the past, from, from really our experience of the past and how that's affected people? All of these big local groups very strongly believed that you could turn to the past in order to build a better future and that that was something that was worth doing. I think that's a very cheering way to end. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming. When I set off on this journey, I wanted to find out why big local groups were getting involved in heritage projects. And I wanted to particularly explore the ideas of Laura Jane Smith, a heritage theorist who talks about heritage as a social process and who talks about the uses of heritage. All of the people who took part in our discussion were very convinced of the value of community heritage for exploring identity and values and for creating a sense of place. But sometimes when I've talked to other people about this, I've found that they've been quite sceptical about the purpose of these projects in meeting community needs. Is it perhaps a bit of a frippery? But what I found in the big local areas that I visited was that residents were working very strategically, really putting heritage to use to improve lives in their areas. The rationale was different in each area, but they all had very strong rationales, very well thought through ideas. And in all of these projects, people are digging into the past and making use of the past in just the way that Laura Jane Smith suggests to answer the question, who are we now and what is really important to us? Don't forget, if you'd like to read the whole of my essay, Designs on the Past, you can find a mobile-friendly digital version at Local Trust's website, www.localtrust.org.uk, where you can also find out more about Big Local. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>